1: Before we begin, a quick warning. This series contains strong language and descriptions of brutality and violence. Our top story this morning. The White House is trying to verify a video which militants from the group Islamic State claim shows the killing of a US journalist.
2: I heard it on the radio at first. It was August the 19th. 2014.
1: James Foley, who was 40, went missing in Syria in late 2012. His mother, Diane, said he gave his life trying to expose the suffering of the Syrian people.
2: When the news suddenly informed me that James Foley, the American journalist, had been beheaded by Islamic State in Syria.
0: Today the entire world is appalled by the brutal murder of Jim Foley by the terrorist group ISIL. May God bless and keep Jim's memory, and may God bless the United States of America.
2: I remember having a sense of shock, of of disbelief in trying to equate the news on the radio, the sound in the kitchen, with the fate of a friend. I didn't watch the whole video through, but I did watch the start of the video, in which James was kneeling in the sand in an orange prison jumpsuit, and... The man standing behind him was dressed in black. We later came to know him by first of all his nickname, so-called "Jihadi John, and later by his real name, Mohammed Mwazi. And James was then murdered.
0: The ISIS video is simply too horrific to show. The man being executed by beheading is James Foley, a freelance journalist kidnapped in Northwest Syria on November 22nd, 2012, Thanksgiving Day. Today we learned he was apparently beheaded by ISIS militants in a graphic video that's been posted on the web. Also in that video, an ISIS member speaking English who claims to be holding a second American journalist and threatens to kill him as well unless, as they demand, the U.S. gets out of Iraq. This
2: is James Wright Foley, an American citizen of your country. As a government, you have been at the forefront of the aggression towards the Islamic State. You have plotted against us and gone far out of your way to find reasons to interfere in our affairs. I remember weeping in in rage at my desk. Which was probably exactly the kind of reaction the video was designed to provoke, I I would guess, but that's certainly what it did provoke. It wasn't just the death of a friend, the killing of a friend, the murder of a friend, the barbarity of it. There was a grotesqueness in the whole theatre and spectacle too. So there was the beginning of a chain of a sequence whereby every two weeks or thereabouts a Western hostage was beheaded...
0: ...video evidence that seems to show another American has been beheaded by the radical
2: ISIS military... In each, you saw a man murdered, and at the end, you saw the next man whose life was up on the line. And it became quickly apparent that it seemed no one was going to escape. They were going to be, all be killed one by one.
0: Now ...report uh, that uh, the American journalist Steven Sotloff, 31-year-old freelancer has been executed by ISIS. Uh, they've just released a
2: videotape. Now, in the very small grouping of journalists who used to cover northern Syria, there were two big names that, that were kind of with us all. They were James Foley and John Cantley, because the two had been abducted together, and their fate had kind of shadowed the few of us who were working regularly there. We don't say, wonder what happened to John and James. So naturally, I expected at some stage in this awful sequence of murder videos coming out, that John would be introduced as the next up victim. But that wasn't the case.
1: That's Anthony Lloyd, veteran foreign correspondent at The Times, who over the last 30 years has covered wars in places like Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya and Syria. He won't tell you this, but he's one of the most respected war reporters of his generation. And I'm Manveen Rana, the presenter of the Stories of Our Times podcast from the Times and the Sunday Times. And in this special series, I'm joining Antony on his quest to find out what happened to John Cantley. Like Antony, I remember that summer in 2014 vividly. I'd just got back from Beirut, where I'd been covering Syria and the rise of ISIS. And that summer, they were suddenly the biggest story in the world, on the front page of every newspaper. ISIS had just taken the city of Mosul and had set up an Islamic state that stretched across parts of Syria and Iraq. And the world was still reeling in shock.
0: Islamic militants seized control of Iraq's second-largest city on Tuesday, freeing up to 1,000 prisoners from a high-security prison in the northern city. The group had already taken the cities of Fallujah and Ramadi in the west. In Mosul today, we saw sporadic gunfire. The insurgents seized police stations, banks and government buildings.
1: As the summer wore on, they became more and more brutal. They carried out a massacre of Yazidis and took women as sex slaves.
0: Islamic State militants have wreaked havoc across Iraq, leaving many Iraqis dead, others displaced, and religious minorities like the Yazidi begging for help.
1: They took the women and the young girls. The men were killed with butcher's knives. And then, a few months later, the headlines became even more gruesome. Those videos began to be released, showing Western hostages actually being beheaded by ISIS. Like Antony, I remember wondering if John Cantley, a British journalist who'd been held by ISIS for two years, would now meet the same fate. But what happened next surprised us all. On the 18th of September, 2014, a new video did emerge, but it wasn't a beheading. Instead, it showed a man in an orange jumpsuit talking straight into the camera, railing against Western policies. It was called Lend Me Your Ears, and the man was John Cantley.
3: Hello, my name is John Cantley. I'm a British journalist who used to work for some of the bigger newspapers and magazines in the UK, including The Sunday Times, The Sun and The Sunday Telegraph. In November 2012, I came to Syria, where I was subsequently captured by the Islamic State. Now, nearly two years later, many things have changed.
2: John Cantley sat in a darkened room, wearing a similar Guantanamo-orange-style prison jumpsuit at a table. He played the role not of journalist, but of a kind of outraged commentator.
3: Over the next few programs, I'm going to show you the truth as the Western media tries to drag the public back to the abyss of another war with the Islamic State. After two disastrous and hugely unpopular wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, why is it that our governments appear so keen to get involved in yet another unwinnable conflict.
2: It was the first of a series of seven such videos which ran over the period of about a month, six weeks. And in these videos, John Cantley sometimes spouted just fairly raw Islamic State propaganda. He was heavily critical of the Western media, but interwoven were his own sentiments a rage at his sense of, abandonment by the British government, which he felt had left him to his fate. Throughout his videos, he acknowledged that he may be next to die. He clearly didn't believe that these videos would necessarily result in him preserving his life.
3: I am a prisoner. That I cannot deny. But seeing as I've been abandoned by my government and my fate now lies in the hands of the Islamic State... I have nothing to lose.
2: Naturally, they provoke the question to anybody watching those videos, how is it that John Cantley has managed to survive while all his cellmates are murdered one by one? How was it that he had become the last man standing?
1: We know what happened to all the other Western hostages held by ISIS. One by one... They were either released or beheaded. But almost a decade after he was first kidnapped, we still don't know what happened to John Cantley. For Anthony, who was himself kidnapped and shot in Syria, it's a question that's haunted him, and it's led to an obsessive, in-depth investigation that's taken him all over the world.
2: I asked that question to people in Iraq in Syria, in Morocco, in Belgium, in Denmark, in Britain, in the States. I've asked that question across three continents. Apart from us, has anyone ever come to ask you about what happened to John Canley or, or your appearance in that video?
4: You are the first people who asked me about John Canley.
2: In this
1: series, based on Anthony's investigation, We'll go back to the moment when John Cantley and his friend James Foley were abducted.
4: They opened the door and there was, like, all of them wearing masks with a clashing cough and they told us, like, stop, stop, stop.
1: And analysing again and again the last footage we have of John, the stream of Islamic State propaganda videos that he appeared in.
3: And behind me, it looks like a scene and a Steven Spielberg film, except this is for real.
1: How did John Cantley, a British journalist, end up presenting ISIS propaganda videos? Was he just trying to stay alive?
0: Whether he believes those words, no one knows. Or did he turn? The Stockholm syndrome, would that play into this at all?
1: To try to understand this complex character, we'll hear from his friends.
0: He would usually start by reminding me how boring my life is, how pathetic I've become since leaving the military and how my business life is no longer exciting or sexy enough and that I should revisit my manhood and get on a plane and come and
2: meet him immediately.
1: (laughs) We'll also hear from those who knew John at his lowest, the hostages who shared a cell with him.
2: He really believed that his job was important, but he also said that... I am a fucking asshole. Like, I am an idiot going into a place like this. Of course I'm an idiot. And of course everybody will hate me. Just just how it is. Because why should anybody else understand why you want to risk your own life?
1: To find out what happened after he was taken, we'll even hear from former members of Islamic State.
0: They got tortured really bad before I was there like really bad. They had to fight each other, like in a dog cage, and people would watch from a roof. And if, if they wouldn't fight, they would be punished way more harder than in the first place.
1: We're bringing together Anthony's long-running investigation to try and answer a few key questions. Why is John Cantley the only hostage whose fate is still a mystery? Did a British journalist switch sides and work for ISIS, or was he just doing what he had to to survive? Could he still be alive, and why does it feel like no one else is looking for him? You're listening to Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode 1, On The Trail. Let's take us back to 2014, to that summer, when we started seeing those awful ISIS videos coming back. Just remind us how hard it was as a, a war correspondent or a foreign correspondent
2: to work out there. The moment you crossed the border, you had to be alert to threat and to danger from every quarter. Syria was a war that involved heavy artillery, tanks, Chemical weapons, Syria's war in which the regime would regularly gas its opponents. Then you could never be quite sure that you had the consent of the local rebel forces with whom you were working alongside, or whether ultimately they would turn on you and abduct you. I mean, Anne,
1: you've just come back from Ukraine, which, you know, when we're watching it on our screens, looks terrifying enough. How does that compare?
2: oh, Ukraine is nothing like as dangerous as Syria was. The vast majority of people, vast majority of Ukrainians, are very hospitable, very friendly, very accepting to your presence there as a Western journalist. You're not going to get sold out, betrayed, taken hostage, abducted, kidnapped, or shot by Ukrainians, knowingly. Syria, there was always that uncertainty, You never know quite what was going to drop out of the sky your way in terms of a barrel bomb, a shell, a rocket. You weren't sure whether the civilians alongside whom you lived, slept and ate, necessarily were happy with you there or whether they were going to sell you out to someone else. Every day I worked there, it felt like walking on a a kind of ice flow as you could hear it begin to crack. Every day felt like that. And it got worse the more trips I did in Syria. There was the just sense of this is getting so incredibly dangerous.
1: So every trip felt like it could be the one when your luck would run out. So when James Foley and John Cantley, two of the small band of journalists covering the Syrian war, were kidnapped, it was what all the other reporters always feared. It could have been any one of them. For Antony, his investigation is also driven by the memory of a moment 10 years ago in the autumn of 2012.
2: I've been going in and out of Syria too throughout 2012. So basically you go like this, you go fly to Istanbul, you connect and go down to Antakya, uh, which is in southern Turkey. We used to call the flights in those days the Jihad Express because they're on the plane with you. <laughs> it was just like loads oh, of guys going, going go to go and join. fight and joining the Jihad, right? And it was that like everybody, so just Brits, jihadis French, and j- journalists. just jihadis and journalists and not many journalists and an awful lot of jihadis. I tell you, so on the old Jihad Express down to uh, southern Turkey. And it, they didn't look discreet either. It was like, guys, you're here for one reason. But anyway, then you get some turkey. I used to stay in this lovely, um, really small hotel with this bourbon villa growing up the outside and over my balcony. And um, lovely. Yeah, I used to um, love it. Anyway, just around the corner, there was this restaurant which had great sea bass. So the night before I go in, I'd always be, it was a bit like the last supper. I was like, okay, I'm gonna have sea bass <laughs> and wine. And I go there. And i try and enjoy myself in the supper, but also it's that kind of fear before you went in, like, oh, my God, basically I just want to smoke cigarettes and repack all my gear all night long, <laughs> which is, is what that- I do. That's tension for me. It's like, okay, I'm just going to repack everything <laughs> one more time. Anyways, I wandered in there, and I saw James and John Cantley sitting at a table in this restaurant. And the thing about James Foley was whenever – you met james foley he smiled and engaged with you like you were the meeting you was just the best part of his day not in a kind of mulchy schmaltzy kind of american way but just a very natural non contrived warmth the guy was absolutely warm and uh funny and engaging and it rubbed off i mean i don't I'm not on the road to make friends, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh yeah, you're on the airfield, so we've got to be friendly or something like that. I was just instantly charmed as like, you're cool, you're funny, and you're very warm and and very likeable character. John was not a friend of mine. I met John a few times, uh, recognised probably he might have been a bit of an outsider like me, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be mates, right? I probably thought he was a bit of a prick. I saw John and I was like, "Oh, John, you're you're not going to give me the time of day, man." And um, sure enough, John, I think he caught, caught sight of me out the corner of his eye, but he wasn't going to say anything. He was just there to, to uh, for his table and his company with with uh, James. But however, James looked round and saw me, gave his fantastic beam, and immediately got out unnecessarily from eating, came across the room hi man you know clearly you're just about to go in you must have seen me looking a bit green and I was like yeah and how was it so he quickly and just warmly he's like hey it's like this and he took me through a couple of things which were going on around the border a couple of things to watch out for he just kind of gave me like you know all the bad things that could happen if you went there and I don't know it was typically kind of generous and it, it was cool it was just like a few minutes chat and then he went back to his meal and we were like yeah well, we're going to see each other soon. That was October 2012. So I went in, I would have come out a week or two later. They then went in and were never seen again.
1: John and Jim crossed over to Syria a few weeks later. And as far as we know, they never left again. We'll be back in just a moment, but if you're interested in this series, you might also want to listen to Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that brings you the best journalism and groundbreaking investigations from The Times and The Sunday Times. One story, in-depth, every day. You can listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. What is it about this story? What is it about John Cantley that makes you keep going back to it?
2: There are so many facets to this story. There's John himself, this complex, often misunderstood character. He was one of us. And by one of us, I don't mean a journalist, because journalists are such a broad spectrum. By what I mean by that is he's one of a very small group of journalists who work alone and often beyond reach in places that are super dangerous, like northern Syria in 2012, 2013. We're not talking, you know, big media, armoured vehicles, security advisor, huge logistics trains, part of a big pack, like wars, the type of journalists that, that, that so often, perhaps necessarily, cover big wars. We're talking about John being part of a group, a very small group, and I recognise that through my own career. I recognise that group. I mean, I've been a journalist now for 30 years, but 19 of those years were freelance. And I started by, you know, hitchhiking to Bosnia in 1993. And it just happened that for various reasons to do with, you know, the time I'd worked there, The fact I'd met John Cantley, I can't claim we were friends at all, we'd met two or three times and probably didn't like each other that much. That didn't matter. All of these things led me to try to find out what happened to John Cantley.
1: To try and answer that question, we have to go back even further, to the summer of 2012, a few months before that meeting in the restaurant in Turkey, and a whole two years before the beheadings began we have to go back to the first time that John Cantley was kidnapped.
2: So in that summer of 2012, John goes back into Syria. He's already beginning to make a name for himself. He's been working earlier in Libya, before that in Afghanistan, but in spring 2012, he's beginning to make a name for himself in Syria. So John then goes back In the summer of 2012. And he meets up with a friend of his, a photographer, a big Dutch guy, called Jeroen Orlemans. And the two cross with a Syrian interpreter over that little mountain range to the area of Hawa, a crossing point inside Syria. And having walked, they got their rucksacks on and all the rest of it. They see this kind of tented camp Hmm. of what they think of Syrian rebels. And they, they'd definitely stopped camps like that before and, and stopped for some tea and then some chats, you know. So um, they go to do that again.
3: Unfortunately, this time, instead of uh, passing uh, through uh, friendly territory, um, we passed through a camp which was inhabited by Islamic jihadists.
1: That's the voice of John Cantley describing the ordeal.
3: And we were effectively, unbeknownst to us or our guide, delivered part and parcel, into the hands of jihadists.
2: Who are not friendly and just arrest them immediately and take all their gear and then bind their hands and put them inside a tent. This is a real fulcrum moment in the war. The war until that point had been largely a Syrian-on-Syrian struggle, the Syrian regime versus Syrian rebels. But what's just begun to happen in that summer of 2012 is the first of what's ultimately thousands and thousands of foreign jihadists from around the world coming to Syria, one of Islam's most holy lands, to participate in what they see is not just a revolution, but a jihad. So what you've got is these two guys, these two journalists, hoping you know they're going to encounter, as they expect, Syrian rebels, have a cup of tea, have a chat and move on. And in fact, bumping into already quite radicalised, but also wanting to be further radicalised, group of foreign young men.
1: Which is pretty terrifying, even if they are young and amateurish.
2: Yeah, with your hands tied. And at one point they hear the sharpening of knives too. Oh, God. Yeah, and they think it's going to be head shopping time.
3: I mean, it's funny, you know, the imagination can run riot. And, and certainly, I mean, speaking for myself, there were times when I actually thought, what does it feel like when, when you're shot in the back of the head, you know, when you're kneeling and blindfolded? You know, is there pain? Does it just go dark? Uh, and then when, you know, they were sharpening the knives, you're like, you know, what does it feel like when someone pulls your head back and actually slices your throat? Can you taste the blood gurgling down your windpipe? It's These are not nice thoughts.
2: But the guys notice the back of the tent, there's either a rip or a tear or, or a gap in it.
3: I remember saying to, to um, my colleague, Jerome, from from the Netherlands, I said, look, mate, this isn't going to get any better. This is only going to get worse, you know. They would, they'd said initially that they just wanted to check who we were and then we'd be let on our way. Then we're cuffed. Then we're led into another tent. We're handcuffed to other prisoners. Uh, now we're blindfolded. And so when we saw the opportunity, we said, let's just take it.
2: So one day, at the end of the day, I think it's about 7pm, John and Jeroen burst out, hands tied. It's very difficult to run with your hands tied, may I burst out the back of the tent during prayer time hoping that the guys as they're all praying will not see them make their escape out the back of the tent and they've gone a bit of a distance when they hear the first shouts behind them and look around and there's about seven or eight guys after them who start shooting at them with Kalashnikovs and you know shooting at them a lot with Kalashnikovs and um, having been pursued and shot at by people with Kalashnikovs boy I tell you you're running at some clip and uh, and it's you know as the bullets fly Uh, You're not in any hurry to stop. However, they had to stop because the first thing is John gets hit through the hip and he's very lucky. It kind of bullet goes in and goes out without clipping his bowel or his arteries, but it's a big, big wound. John gets, you know, clipped on the ear and then hit in the hand as well. He's bleeding. They're running barefoot over all this really rough and thorny territory. and, And by that stage, there's bullets flying everywhere. So they stop. And recaptured. The difference between the great escape and the shit escape is definitely getting recaptured, because in Syria, those who have recaptured you, particularly when it comes to jihadists, will not think, well, nice try, we'll give you a cup of tea and don't try it again. It's not like Escape from Cold. It's John and Jerome are, you know, their wounds are now covered in flies, beginning to smell and get infected. Oh. They're tied up, um... There's a lot more talk about you will be killed, you won't be killed. Finally, I think it's day seven, there's a huge hubbub and a whole lot of Syrian rebels turn up. And they turn up to rescue them and they stare down these foreign jihadis, grab John and take them away to freedom. There's a huge amount of media interest around his account of what had happened to him, not simply because he was taken hostage, escaped and shot, which always, you know, attracts interest, but because of who the people concerned were. They were foreign jihadists. He was aware that what he'd unwittingly experienced was a really important development in the war.
1: When John returned to London with a bullet wound in his arm... He sat down for an interview with a Broadcasting House programme on Radio 4 with Paddy O'Connell.
3: Welcome to BH. Welcome back to the UK. Uh, Good morning. Yes, thanks very much. It's uh, good to be back, for sure.
1: For him, is this sort of an oddly unexpected moment where, as a journalist covering the war, he suddenly got the biggest story going?
2: I think it must have been a surprise for him Was around that time I saw him Back in London, in the Frontline Club, uh, we weren't there for a meeting. We just happened to be in, in, end up in the same room together. I think he was surprised also, you know, he was a bright guy. So, yeah, of course, he was surprised by what had happened to him. But he was also smart enough to realise that there was a really important element to it.
3: Um, how are you? I'm OK. I'm fine. The feet are a bit cut up. Um, running across uh, uh, granite boulders and thorns and cacti and bare feet isn't ideal. Um, And I had an operation on Wednesday, last Wednesday, um, to look at the the nerve in the arm. It's not severed, but it will take time to to get the feeling back.
1: Having just survived this kidnapping, John Cantley comes back, is recovering, having been shot. But very quickly, he starts talking about going back to Syria.
3: I mentioned you were freed with help from the Free Syrian Army. Will you go back? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's my job you know it's it's a lot it's i don't really know how to do anything else you know it's always the first question i mean of course you know the time right now is to repair i'm no use to anyone they took all our gear i've got to get this hand sorted but but yes absolutely the people the syrian people are amazing
2: so i think for many people looking at john's experience of captivity and escape they would have seen a guy who you know was taken hostage was tied up, was beaten, was shot trying to escape, whose friend was shot really badly trying to escape, was, you know, recaptured, beaten again, had that, you know, his life was totally at risk were it not for the sudden appearance and rescue by Syrian rebel forces, would naturally conclude, looking at all that, definitely don't go back to Syria. But that wasn't how John saw it. I mean, to most people listening,
1: it will sound like a mad thing to do, you know, but... You would wonder why you'd want to even think about carrying on doing the same job. I mean, you've been kidnapped. What made you go back to it?
2: Well, for a start, if you're going to war, you see people the whole time who've been injured, who've been beaten up or put in prison or people who've been killed. And you've got to be quite stupid to think, well, that won't happen to me. If I thought that, oh, I'm only doing this job because I'm assuming I'm never going to get hurt. Well, it'd be pretty dim. So I think that John, you know, had been abducted, had been hurt, but wanted to continue, you know, with the life of a photojournalist um, covering wars.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was kidnapped not in Syria, in Beirut, and very different circumstances. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't shot or anything like that, but I sort of felt I had to go back within 48 hours, otherwise... A, it becomes a thing people know you for and you don't want that. You don't want want to be the person who got kidnapped and that's it. You sort of want to be there doing the story. But also there's just that sense of if you don't, you don't want the fear to set in.
2: The fear to set in, exactly that.
1: Back on a horse or something. You've got to keep going and it just becomes a small thing. It's just something that happened and you're still doing your job as opposed to I got kidnapped and that was it. (laughs)
2: John was very aware of that, and I know that because he spoke to people about it. He was concerned that although his story had been of interest, the editors might be concerned about reassigning him to Syria in case they thought he was not so much damaged goods, but his, his risk analysis was probably not quite up to it or might have contributed to him getting taken, which in fact the first time was just plain unlucky. I mean, it really was unlucky. Anybody could have made that mistake. So he was concerned about that.
1: John Cantley did go back. Why and why he went back to the same place are questions that we'll come back to later. But not long after that moment in the little restaurant on the Turkish border, the one with the excellent sea bass, that last time that Antony saw John and James Foley, they both crossed the border into Syria. Having survived his first kidnapping... John's luck was about to run out. Next time on Last Man Standing, we'll hear from Mustafa Karali, who was John's local fixer in Syria, and also his friend.
4: I, I like this guy, I really love him. Yeah, he's my best friend, he's my teacher, you know.
1: Mustafa was with them on the day that John and James were kidnapped. For John, it was all too familiar.
4: They opened the door and there was like, all of them wearing masks with a clashing cough and they told us like, stop, stop, stop. And John asked the taxi driver, don't stop, don't stop, go, 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 go. And he started shouting and he says, I don't want to kidnap again. I remember that. And he told me that, I don't want to be with these people again, you know. He says they are so bad, Mustafa, please help me.
1: Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent at The Times. It's co presented and executive produced by me, Manveen Rana. The lead producer is Poppy Damon. The producer is Matt Wareham. Story editing is by Joe Sykes at Samizdat Audio. Sound design and original music is by Tom Birchall. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford.